The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. As always, this will be an edited podcast on all your favorite platforms under that Lead Lag Live banner. And since I run this more like a crowdsourced podcast, please do me a favor and participate. Joining me favor is Mr. Richard Christopher Whalen. I know many of you have seen over the years doing the media runs. Uh, but Richard, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? How'd you get involved and interested in markets? And what are you doing today? Well, uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Christopher Whalen. I go by Chris because I was born on the 6th of January and I had a Russian grandmother. So there you are. I've worked as a banker, author, journalist for the past several decades. And uh, I've worked in the ratings community, but I've always been an investment banker. And I currently uh, work with a small firm in New York called Cohen & Company. And we do mortgage finance. Uh, we do the basic bread and butter of TBA trading, which is interest rate hedging. We finance loans, and we also do some M&A and some other activities. So it's really great to be with you. I've been following your comments for a while, Michael, and uh, you always have something interesting to say. That's what makes Twitter interesting, by the way, is participation. I follow people who have something to say. Yeah, and I'm glad my uh, my Santa picture doesn't throw people off too much, but but let's... <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but remember, if you change your picture on Twitter, they take your check away. That's, that's right. It, it takes seven <laughs> days to have to get the uh, verification. We'll, maybe we'll touch on, on that as I think. So, um, uh, so this is actually interesting, this point about interest rate hedging, because I think if we started the year and knew at the end of the year where rates would be, I would suspect that a lot of those that are in the bond market would have thought there were some real default risk premiums getting priced in. Let's yeah. talk about interest rate hedging this year compared to other rate hiking cycles. First of all, what is interest rate hedging? Let's kind of define that for the audience, what's involved, and how do you even go about hedging in something we've never really seen before? Well, there are various types of hedging. Some of it makes sense, some doesn't. The most frequent application, I think, that you see with most banks and broker-dealers is they're hedging their short-term interest rate exposure. So if I'm a mortgage lender, I'm closing mortgages for people, I'm short, okay? In other words, I need cash. And the way that I finance this is I kind of sort of figure out how many mortgages I'm going to close this month. And I try and sell that number forward in the uh, what we call the TBA market, which is a 30 to 60 day market. It's the basic foundation of the treasury market, by the way. 
because this is where people hedge interest rate exposures, the second largest market in the world. So we never talk about it on the media, on television, because it's not equities, but it's extremely important. And that's, that's really the biggest type of hedging. When banks and other investors buy a piece of paper for credit, in other words, they're going to invest in a bond, they usually don't hedge it. They keep it because they want to own it. They like the issuer, right? If they don't like the issuer, if that changes, they sell it. But they typically don't you know, hedge their portfolio. They're held to maturity stuff, right? They, they hedge the market risk within a year primarily. And when we think about hedging, there's got to be a duration aspect, presumably, to how much you hedge or where you'd want to stop hedging, right? So how has that been managed? Because you, know, you don't want to hedge, obviously, or at least have a big hedge when, you know, when you're towards the end of a rate hike cycle. But maybe I'm wrong. No, but to, to the point you've made when we started, we've had years now since the great financial crisis where the bias in interest rates has been down. And, and really, you were not paid to hedge. Wall Street makes a lot of money by selling the idea of rising interest rates. And over the past 12 years, I would argue that that was a bad trade. You've had some periods where rates uh, rose, but then they go right back down. And part of this is because there's such demand for dollars offshore still today that the bias has been really negative since 2008. In other words, if you look at the market for dollar swaps, where you can exchange a fixed dollar payment for floating, the spread for dollars is negative. In other words, the U.S. has got a free ride. Every other country in the world pays a positive premium for hedging risk in their currency over time. We don't. We have the, the special role of the dollar. So there was an interesting piece uh, on Zero Hedge last day or so about Zoltan Posar and his latest prognostications about the dollar and you know, how the Chinese and the OPEC members, everybody else are going to take over the world. But, you know, the reality is, is that the world likes using dollars as a means of exchange for global commerce and trade and financial transactions, partly because it's big. So, you know, with that background, just think about, you know, in the U.S. today, we have had a period where basically you didn't have to hedge, really, and they didn't. So when the Fed started changing interest rates this year, they caught a lot of people asleep. Uh, and that's why that number accumulated other comprehensive income uh, was negative $350 billion in the third quarter for U.S. banks. That's unrealized losses that those banks have not chosen to take. I suspect that number is going to get bigger. And when you talk about duration, Michael, that's what this is. You know, the Fed took duration out of the market with quantitative easing. They bought trillions of dollars worth of bonds, including mortgage bonds. And then when they started to push rates up, what happened to those mortgage bonds? The duration exploded. So those Ginnie twos and two and a halves that were, you know, issued at par on a duration of, say, four years, two and a half years ago, are now on a 15-year duration, and they're trading in the 70s. And all the banks that kept that paper are underwater, obviously. And at some point, they're going to have to sell that stuff. And this is not just a problem for banks. It's a problem for pension funds. It's a problem for Fannie and Freddie, by the way, which is going to be one of the sleeper stories of 2023. So everybody has the same problem. And it all starts at the Fed because of their manic pursuit of you know, full employment and price stability, which you can't really do 
but they pursue it anyway. And most recently, we had a tendency led by Janet Yellen, who thought inflation is too low. Now we don't think that. You know, duration, I've always argued, is the way central bankers should manage their policy moves. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. It is interesting when I, when I look at financials, just using sort of a broad-based financials, ETF, another, another thing I'd argue is that if at the start of the year you were going to have the fastest rate hiking in cycle in history, that wouldn't necessarily be good for the banks. But the bank stocks have actually fared pretty well, even though a lot of defensive sectors also have performed quite well this year. Talk about just the fundamentals of the banking sector here in this rate hike cycle, because you'd think that if the market's a discounting mechanism, if we're headed for a recession next year, the market should start to cause banks to go down at a faster pace or at least underperform the broader averages, but that really hasn't been the case. No, not yet. Um, you know, you have to remember that the same inflationary bias that the Fed has injected into the equity markets in terms of stock prices rising is going to work against them as they try and normalize because there's an awful lot of advisors out there who have had a pretty bad 12 months and they've all been trying to position clients to go back in and buy bank stocks. You know, this is one of the areas I follow uh, in our blog and in our analytical work. In fact, Michael, we may be resurrecting our ratings soon. So stay tuned for that. But, you know, really, the, the street has kept these stocks higher than they should be. If you look at earnings, if you look at prospective earnings this year, which I think will be lower, if you look at the fact that higher interest rate environments tend to be bad for book value, and they are. My friend Dick Beauvais reminded me of that the other day. I just can't construct a really bullish scenario for common bank stocks. I rotated out of my common in 20, uh, went almost entirely to preferreds. And, you know, for a while it was long the mortgages, but again, duration had to get out and rates started to rise. You know, I think the next year or two is going to be tough for financials. They're going to give back the money they made on market uh, facing businesses the last two years during quantitative easing. You can see this with Goldman and all the other street firms. They're positioning, they're laying people off. The mortgage firms are doing the same thing because they're even more correlated to interest rates. And I think the main street banks will be okay. They're going to make money on rate, but the volumes will be constrained. They're going to have a tough time originating assets and they're going to keep them. They will not be sellers. So look at the landscape. Fed is not a buyer anymore. They used to be the biggest buyer of interest rate risk. The banks are net sellers. They've been told to sell by the regulators. So they are reducing balance sheet and obviously quantitative tightening where the Fed runs off its book is a big part of this. But I think, you know, there's a case to be made, frankly, that the same reason stocks surge for the past few years 
And remember, we've done quantitative easing since the end of the great financial crisis 12 years ago. Uh, but now we're not doing that anymore. So I think people have got to reorient their minds in terms of market risk and market potential in terms of volatility. And, and, and that's the other story besides duration, Michael's volatility has been you know, off the scale since uh, really 2018 when the Fed almost dropped the ball. And if you look at the way the lower coupon securities are trading versus the on-the-run stuff, the current production in both treasuries and mortgages, the volatility is two, sometimes 3x. So can you hedge that Ginny May two and a half? No, not effectively. And so what's happened is a lot of lenders, the smaller guys, are going to what we call best efforts. They're not accumulating pools anymore and hedging them for 30 days before they sell them. They're just selling loans one at a time, or they'll do a flow agreement with a bigger issuer, and, and they will not spend money on hedging at all because they can't. There's no point. So the volatility that the Fed has injected and the way that they have played around with the duration in the financial system, these two factors, I think, are going to color the next year or so for financials, and it'll probably be net negative. I, I think most of these stocks have to go down more. You know, JP at one and a half times book is not cheap, especially when you think about what Jamie's book value really is. You, you saw that piece we did where we did mark the market on all the banks and they're negative almost $2 trillion today. That's the result of the Fed's machinations and their social engineering. When I talk about mark to market, what I'm really saying is that you know, the, the, the banks and brokerage houses have to tell you what they have in their available for sale category. These are bonds, loans, anything else that they are prepared to sell. All right. So every quarter, indeed every week, they try and do a mark to market on that position and they report it. Okay. If they have something that's got a loss, but they haven't sold it yet. In other words, they still own it. Um, we show that in accumulated other comprehensive income. Now, historically, this number hasn't been very big, and it hasn't really mattered. It, sometimes there was a premium, you know, when the markets were rallying and bonds were going up in price, and sometimes the other way, right? But unfortunately, the Fed, because of the degree of manipulation they have engaged in, in the private markets, what private markets we have left, right, has embedded losses across the board. So it doesn't matter if it's a commercial loan or a, a bond or a credit card receivable, whatever it is. The paper that was originated back in 2020 and 2021 that had lower coupons is now lower in price because coupons have gone up, right? Yield goes up, price goes down for all fixed income securities and loans. So a commercial loan that was written two years ago with a seven-year maturity that loan is going to trade at a discount. And uh, a consumer loan, for example, that a servicer has to buy out of a Ginny Mae pool that's delinquent, that's got a two and a half coupon. Well, what do you do when you modify that loan to help the consumer keep them in the house, right? Which is always the primary objective. And then you're going to sell that two and a half after you've modified the loan back into a Ginny pool that's trading at six. Well, guess what? You're going to lose 15 points on that loan. <laughs> so this is the problem, the, the manipulation of duration throughout the financial system affects all of these intermediaries who hold securities, who hold loans, 
interest rate swaps, whatever it is. They all have to mark the market. Central banks, well, they don't really care. These, these are entities that primarily buy and hold. Now, they were losing money during quantitative easing in 2020 and 21 because people were paying off their mortgages and refinancing them. And if you're the Bank of Japan and you're sitting there with a Ginny May 5 and you've got a 30 or 40% prepayment rate every year, you're losing money because you paid one of three or plus for that security and you're getting prepayments back at par. You're losing three points every time somebody refinances their mortgage. Uh-huh. Same thing happens to everybody else because they had a certain expectation that that Ginny Mae would have, say, a six or seven year maturity and the Fed drops rates and all of a sudden it prepays in a year. It's gone. And so the, the major central banks have lost a lot of money over the past few years because of the high prepayment rates on consumer securities like mortgages and also on callable securities that could be refinanced. Anything that had a call option in it, people exercised it because they had lower interest rates, right? And you see the same thing now. If rates rally a bit, if we see interest rates fall, every consumer out there is a heck of a lot smarter than they were 20 years ago. They're going to refinance as soon as they can. So the bondholders will still have to think about prepayment risk going forward. But it won't be as severe as what we saw during COVID. That that was just off the scale in terms of the degree of volatility. And so everybody is going to have to live with that. So imagine you're a bank and you own a Ginny Mae two and a half. And a year from now, your cost of funds at the bank is up to 3%. Well, you're losing money on that security, aren't you? You're losing a point every year or half a point in yield every year. Eventually, your treasurer is going to come to you and say, sell that damn Ginny Mae two and a half, please. Go buy something with a 7 or an 8% coupon. And that's when they'll realize the loss. Because when you go to the market with that two and a half today, I think you'd probably get around 77 for it. That's tough if you pay it over par. You know what I mean? That's a 25-point loss. And that's what the Fed has embedded in the entire financial system. What I would tell you is that during this period of extraordinary central bank action since 2008, really, when the central banks started buying large quantities of assets, both government debt and private assets in Europe and Japan, and even some in the U.S., they pushed down visible default rates. And how do you do this? Well, you just raise the price for existing assets and securities. And all of a sudden, everything out there that is secured looks great. I mean, loss given default on one to four family mortgages owned by banks last quarter was negative 170%. What does this mean? Well, it means that if somebody actually defaults on a loan, you can not only pay off the loan, but you make money on the default, right? So what that's basically telling you is that the Fed has distorted the credit markets to such a degree that current default rates are still falling across the board. However, if you look out a couple of months at certain indicators, you can see that we're going to revert back to the mean. So while you know loss given default on one to four family homes in the U.S. has been negative for five years, five years, and it's no coincidence that home prices rose by a record amount during this period. The two are correlated very closely. 
So as we start to normalize, in other words, the Fed and the other central banks aren't in there buying every day, then yes, you're going to see credit come back. It could take a year and a half, two years. In fact, I will tell you that you know the Fed will be forced to ease by 24. Uh, they, they're not going to go into a general electric uh, election tightening. And after that, you'll probably see another tightening because inflation will still be a problem. And then I think you see the maxi reset on housing in probably 26 or 27. Uh, why? Because these are long-term cycles. You have long periods where there's not enough housing. The pent-up demand builds sometimes for a decade, as in the case of the 2010s. Horrible decade for housing. And then all of a sudden it takes off. We had COVID, obviously. But there's other factors. You, you know, I don't think you're going to see a lot of home price depreciation below the average of you know, around $300,000 because there's no homes. There's such demand for housing at that low end. It's terrible. But that's the reality. So credit is always a function, first and foremost, of the secured credit markets. Most of Europe is secured, we hope, right? But I think they're still benefiting from the, the quantitative easing done by the European Central Bank. I, I would tell you that all of these indicators are still unreliable, and you really got to dig down and say, I'll give you a great example. Advances on delinquent loans in the Ginny May market, FHA, VA, USDA, are going up at 30% a year. But the defaults are still falling. Huh? No, those two arrows are going in different directions. So you're going to start seeing signs of a turn in terms of credit default loss, real loss, but it's going to take a while. And this affected everything, by the way. Even commercial and industrial loans in the U.S. were affected by quantitative easing. It pushed the loss rate down 20 points. Now, that complex stayed normal in a sense that loss was still positive, but the whole housing complex has been negative for five years. You almost could not lose money on a one to four family loan owned by a bank. It's important to understand, you know, I, I uh, worked on a quirky book called uh, Financial Stability with my friend Fred Belkamp, who's a retired attorney from Detroit. Fred is the father of the true sale in, in uh, the security sense. When he got out of college in the 70s, he had to go to the library and figure out a way to resurrect consumer finance, like you were talking about. Credit card receivables, accounts receivables issued by Sears and other retailers. The first mortgage deals, by the way, were done in that period. They were all done by non-banks. These were not done by banks. And why? Because the non-bank market, the, the sales of relatively short-term securities is the foundation of the U.S. economy. The reason we recovered faster than other nations around the world is because we have a bond market. And the morons in Washington keep trying to destroy it. You know, the Elizabeth Warrens and the rest of them, but they fundamentally don't understand that this is our ace in the hole. This is why the United States has such a vibrant economy. Is it prudent lending? Not particularly, because it's an originate to sell model. So you're making a loan, and you've just seen this, by the way. Uh, the the explosion of fintech companies and non-bank lenders, okay, lending club and all the rest of them, the guys at Cross River Bank and, you know, there's a whole list of them that we follow in the blog, but most of them are, 
down at the 52-week lows right now, and they're going to stay there for a while. So by definition, this is what the market will bear. You're originating a speculative, unsecured piece of paper, okay? It's not unlike the kind of paper Capital One or City or any of these other big issuers originate. But they don't have nosebleed default rates. They don't have nosebleed uh, yields. When you look at a bank or a finance company, the first thing you should do is look at the yield they charge on their, their product. So you got somebody like Capital One that's in the low 20s. You have other credit card issuers out there that are in the 40s and the 50s. And you might think, well, how can they justify that? Half of the portfolio is going to default. So the survivors are essentially subsidizing the issuer to keep them in business. It's like payday lenders. Members of Congress get all you know, upset about 200% interest rates. But the reality is half of that book or more is going to default. So if you're going to be in that business, you've got to charge the survivors a lot of money. That's, that's consumer finance autos, same thing. You know, during COVID, uh, again, because of the impact on credit, you actually saw loss given default on auto loans go down to almost zero. And I'm talking about the prime stuff that the banks own, right? It's normalizing now. It's going to go back up to 70 or so, which is more or less where it's always been historically. But an auto loan, you know, is somewhat secured. It's not fully secured at all. Um, and then you have all sorts of other financing for small business, large business, most of which is secured. There's usually an asset there or something. So are we getting back to a period of prudent lending? Well, you know, after 2008 and the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010, you really lobotomized the banks. You got them out, you know, and, and we're told by our friends in Washington that this is reducing risk. But I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, nature finds a way, as they say in Jurassic Park. And there is liquidity out there, and there are consumers who need that liquidity. And one way or another, they're going to find each other. I think you're seeing a sharp fall off right now in ABS activity and issuance overall. And partly this is just because volumes are falling. So a lot of banks are going to keep paper, and then you're going to see a lot of non-banks that sprung up over the last few years. You know, you have people like Upstart, a firm, there's a whole you know, half dozen or more of these newbies that were funding themselves off banks, first and foremost. In other words, a bank would close the loan and fund it, and then they would turn around and sell it. You know, SoFi, same thing. They're now sort of a bank. They have a broker-dealer. But their model was really to originate and sell consumer credit. And they tried to hold on to the customer, give them banking services. That's why they became a bank. Um, so think of this as the fringe on top of the banking world. You know, banks are about secured finance. Anything that happens on top of that is usually in a falling rate environment. People are feeling better about credit. When rates go up, though, credit comes back as a concern. And that's what you're going to see this year with the banks. Credit costs are going to normalize and then they're going to go up. Uh, and investors are not ready for this. We haven't had this conversation in uh, 10 years. So that's going to be fun for people like Michael and I, bring everyone down to earth. Uh, but provisions, expenses across the board are going up. Volumes for ABS issuers and non-bank issuers are going down. And what you want to do is, if you're interested in this sector, track people like Capital One, track the default rates on ABS deals. You know, my old colleagues at Cruel Bond Ratings do great research, most of which is free. So, um, you know, the data is out there, but I think you're going to see a sharp uptick in default rates on most of that non-bank 
originate the cell product we saw over the last couple of years. You know, if you look at the yield curve today, you have on the one hand, the short end where the Fed is pushing rates up, literally. Um, and they're doing it, I think, against the market tendency to go down. You might think, well, gee, Chris, why are rates want to go down? Because there's way too much capital out there. That's, again, why if you look at the full curve going out 50 years and you compare the treasury yield curve with swaps, what do you see? Well, once we get to about seven, eight years, the swaps trade beneath treasuries in terms of yield. In other words, higher price. And that means there's somebody out there bidding for it. And it goes down and down until it's below three for 50 years. Uh, it's a big pretzel. And so I look at that, and to your question, the Fed is clearly worried about disorderly markets. The Treasury has been going on and on about this. But unfortunately, we have people at both of these institutions that don't really understand markets. So Janet Yellen's uh, answer to market volatility is to force everybody that buys treasuries to join the clearinghouse in New York, that will reduce the number of entities out there that are willing to buy U.S. Treasury bonds. But for some reason, both she and former Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner have been pushing this agenda. And I think it's partly because of the you know, anti-money laundering and sanctions and everything else that is you know, wrapped up in, in U.S. financial policy. But I think it's almost to the time now when we got to start trying to think about making our markets more attractive for global audiences and not less attractive. Because, you know, they want to avoid 2018, you know, September 2019 kind of events, right? Where there was a lot of volatility and there was discontinuities in price. You were trading at one yield one minute. And then it went up half a point in yield in a day. If you compare the volatility day by day and look at both treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, which again are the foundation of the treasury market, uh, the volatility is crazy. And that's worrisome, I think, both for me and, and policymakers. They look at that and go, uh-oh. Because if you're a, a market maker or a primary dealer, and you're supposed to be supporting customers who want to buy treasury bonds. You have to sell treasury bonds, remember. People don't just come and get them. Uh, they have to be sold by a dealer. And you've got to convince that buyer that they should buy it today instead of waiting a week and buying it cheaper, right? But when you have this kind of volatility every day, up and down, not only is it impossible to hedge a position, but it's hard for customers to make up their minds as to what they want to do. The Fed flooded the markets, you know, in the U.S. government as well. All the cash they put out there during COVID, that greatly distorted yields. It distorted issuance patterns and everything else. So we're only now kind of sort of getting back to normal, even close to normal in the bond market. But I still think it'll take another six to eight months to tighten up pricing so that those yields you look at when you're pondering the Treasury market mean something. Because right now, I mean, we're still getting over QE and the, the Fed being the buyer of last resort for everything. Now they're not. They will still buy treasuries, by the way, because as they prepay, they want to maintain their treasury book. They're not going to be reinvesting in mortgages. I don't think they'll get anywhere near the cap. It's $35 billion a month in payoffs. 
Uh, no, it's not going to happen for a long time. In fact, uh, Jay Powell and I are probably going to both be gone before the Fed gets rid of all the mortgages they bought in 20 and 21. That's how long they're going to be around. It could be 20 years. My group at, uh, at Kroll, I left in 2017, but my former colleague, Marjan Riggi, does great work on uh, BDCs and her team. They cover most of the universe too, by the way. So have a look at that. The BDC is an entity, it's a 40-act advisor that has tax advantages and other advantages. And they primarily uh, engage in lending to small and mid-sized enterprises and on a leverage basis, right? So they are 100% correlated to credit. So credit right now looks great, quite benign. Credit default swaps, whatever you want to look at, they're still not nearly as gnarly as one might expect after nine months of Fed interest rate tightening. But I think over time, as the other default indicators normalize and you start seeing positive net charge-off rates for most bank assets, especially in the housing sector, you'll start to see softening in the credit for the BDCs. You know, the markets are very impatient. Everybody's out there trying to put trades on and beat the other guy or beat the crowd, if you will. But I think we're going to have to learn to be more disciplined. I work with a couple of distressed shops. And one of the things I've said to them, I said, this could take a while to unwind. You know, give you an example. Everybody is worried about the government market. I spend a lot of my time in mortgages. And I'm not that worried about it. I'm far more worried about conventionals. But that will take a year to emerge. And the question is, you know, can people be patient and actually take the time to figure out what's going on? Or do they want to guess? Now, not all BDCs will get into trouble. They're kind of like commercial mortgage-backed securities in a sense that you've got to go through their portfolio. You've got to see who they're lending money to. So it's hard to compare them one to the other. And what I would say to you is if you have an interest in them, just go do the homework. Find out what's in their portfolio. Look at the uh, default rates, which they have to disclose. And, you know, follow them. I think everybody who has credit exposure today is going to be hurting more a year from now than they are now. Because the lag on all of these things in the economy is, is considerable. I mean, even the big mortgage issuers, the Pennybacks and Mr. Cooper and all of them, they're all coasting still on the cash flow from quantitative easing. That's only now really kind of winding up. And there are a lot of street uh, traders I know who were short these stocks. And it was like, guys, be careful. Because they, they made a mistake. <laughs> they were too early. So volatility is both our friend and our enemy. And if you're out trying to make a credit decision on BDCs, you've got to treat every one of them as being different. They're all different. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. What would be your guess, Richard, on uh, Chris? Rather on um, on sort of, th- there's got to be some 
some sweet spot for default risk premiums that the Fed wants to see, right? Because, you know, if you're going to break inflation, you've got to have some bankruptcy, some defaults. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. you don't want it to be out of control, right? So, and it's, it's debatable if you can kind of keep it sort of a, at a, just kind of at the edge of where it might be a problem. What would be a trigger for the Fed to start really lowering rates when it comes to the default risk spreads uh, blowing out? Is, is, is there some historical precedent we can look to? Is there some duration of time in terms of how long those spreads need to be wide uh, for the Fed to start changing course? Well, that's the, um, that's the million-dollar question you just asked because the Fed is flying blind. The, the decisions that they make today, which they mostly model against GDP, by the way, uh, are going to affect markets and asset classes and everything else in the future. But they don't know what that indicator is. So, you know, for example, a week ago, uh, the U.S. government had to essentially nationalize the largest reverse mortgage lender in the country, uh, reverse mortgage funding. Ginny May now owns the asset and the industry is servicing it. But that kind of volatility comes from liquidity risk. It's not credit risk yet. It's mostly coming from market risk because rates have moved so much in a short period of time that these embedded losses and funding requirements are now expanding. Essentially, the duration is exploding. And People are just not willing to say, yeah, I'll take the risk and buy this thing out of bankruptcy. So Uncle Sam ended up owning it. You're going to see more of that over time as the economy slows. If you indeed do see unemployment, the Fed's willing to tolerate unemployment and start to see it get up there, then you're going to see defaults. What will be the catalyst that says to them, whoops, we went too far? I don't know, because I think, unfortunately, they're going to make decisions. And then the events are going to occur. It's not the other way around. You know, I, I think most people would like to tell themselves that the Fed is omniscient and that they have a God's eye view of the future, but they don't. They're just like you and I, and they often miss things, frankly. I would say that you will probably see a couple of financials roll over. You could see a REIT roll over simply because of funding problems. It's not about credit yet. That's later. So that would be my guess, is if you see a big enough credit default event, like a large bank that's been having problems, headline risk, that kind of thing, can't raise money, what's the candidate for that? Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse is a bank without a home right now. They have a lot of stuff in the U.S. they would like to get rid of, and there are no buyers, particularly after this uh, event I just described to you with the uh, reverse mortgages. So you have pockets, uh, real hot pockets of risk in the in the market today, and they haven't emerged yet. We, we haven't seen them yet. The Fed can't fine-tune unless they know what's going to happen, right? And they don't. They are no more omniscient than you and I. So that's the question you have to ask yourself. They're walking in a dark room. They're trying to feel their way along and not fall in a hole. And so the question is, how can they avoid that? The answer is not clear. I, I don't know of any indicator that I could show to these people right now that says to them, well, hold on, because most of the indicators are so distorted because of past policy actions by the Fed, they're kind of meaningless. I could show you default rates off of banks, but I know the number's wrong. <laughs> How wrong is the number? Probably an order of magnitude, too low. That's the difficulty. People like to believe that the Fed can see into the future, like the, the guys driving the starships in Dune, 
But no, there is no secret uh, sauce that they can take with their lunch that's going to give them uh, vision into the future. The way I would put it is this. I, I think the Fed knows that you have a deflationary bias generally. And this goes back to 2008. We're, we're still recovering a decade later from that experience. And so you have that. And yeah, maybe in their heart of heart, they think, well, you know, we have this and this and this that are contributing to deflation. Therefore, we can run hot. And indeed, we can have a 2% target, which is explicitly at odds with the statute. And yet they say, well, we've had deflation for so long that we have to catch up. This is the siren song that central bankers always chase. You know, everyone in our marketplace has a conflict and they all have personal biases and they all want to get home for dinner on time. So what does that mean? It means in the mid 90s, just before the uh, collapse of long term capital management, uh, the guys at the SEC under uh, Richard Breeden decided that, you know, managing liquidity was too difficult. And they thought, well, we'll just give this problem to the Fed. So they amend uh, Rule 2A7. It basically makes it impossible for non-banks, especially home builders and mortgage firms, to issue their own paper directly to uh, money market funds. They gave that whole market to the banks. And since that time, this has only increased. So today, the liquidity is in the bank. You have people who need the liquidity essentially as customers of the bank. But you have very few instances where, say, a non-investment grade issuer like a home builder can issue paper themselves. They just can't do that anymore. So much like in computers where we deal with security issues by reducing functionality, in the capital markets, regulators tend to reduce activity, reduce the scope of non-regulated entities. And they constantly tell people to become banks. That's not a way to have growth and leverage that we need to make our economy work, but it's it's the human nature because, you know, again, the people at the SEC didn't want to deal with this anymore. So they gave it to the Fed. And, you know, I always hold this up to people because the 90s was the renaissance of consumer non-bank finance. That's why we had the growth that we did in an otherwise pretty bad decade. You know, 95, I remember when we first built our bank model was the center line for 40 years of data because there was nothing going on in 1995. <laughs> it was a difficult period. So I think, uh, you know, to me, the the way I have always thought about markets is, yeah, there's a combination of demographics and other factors which drives this. There's the desire on the part of people who make money. And then there's the desire on the part of other people, especially regulators, to avoid problems, right? So they tell the big banks, no more headline risk. After 2012, national mortgage settlement, they said, don't lend money to poor people. So they don't. Where do those people go? They go to a non-bank lender. So, you know, one way or another, we're going to get it done. But, you know, our politicians are constantly making judgments about how markets should or should not behave. That doesn't mean they understand how they're going to behave. And I think you're going to see some rather significant surprises this year. Let's look at crypto. How far behind? Would our beloved regulators possibly be on something as basic as this? This is fraud. It was always fraud. And none of these people had the courage to get up and say so. So there's, you know, the conflict possible problem in our society, these trusted agents that are supposed to protect us, uh, is always something you should keep in the back of your mind. Because everything you hear on TV 
is basically part of the buy side narrative. Got to be fully invested, you know? If, uh, uh, no advisor would have told me to sell all my common in 20 and rotate in the, in the bank preferred. Uh-uh. Never happened. You know, it is what it is. We, we are in a free but totally biased market. You know, I guess with respect to CMBS, you always have to remember that the stuff you see in a CMBS deal tends to be the sort of loans that are not going to be held in portfolio by a bank. And it's not that they're bad loans. It's just they're not as good as the stuff they keep. There is a qualitative difference. The bank will do a lot more work on a loan that they're going to keep as opposed to a loan that they're going to sell. And, uh, you know, to, you know, give a shout out to my former colleagues and everybody in the ratings community, there is a lot of information out there on the composition of CMBS deals, even of surveillance products that follow the deals through time because every single issuer in a given deal is different. These are buildings, they have rent rolls, they have customers, everything else. So to do the credit work on them, it takes a lot of resources and a lot of time. What I would say is that I think issuance overall for the next year or two is going to be down compared to the last couple of years, obviously, because of rates. And what that's going to mean is that the issuers, especially the banks, are going to keep their cooking. They're not going to be selling a lot of it. That's going to, I think, probably drive demand on the part of non-bank entities who want to hold that paper, right? There is a constituency out there for it. And they're just going to have to pay more, ironically, you know, because, you know, we're sitting here with a rising rate environment. There are a lot of banks out there that are looking at paper that was originated a year or two years ago or may have been originated and not sold yet because of the rate volatility. And banks are being forced to look at that paper and say, okay, if I sell this tomorrow, what do I get for it? So CMBS requires a certain amount of stability in the market so that they can hedge loans as they accumulate them. And they typically want hundreds of millions in loans for a deal to make the deal make sense. And that's the big constraint now. So CMBS is pretty quiet. It'll come back because there are buyers for the loans. The trouble is pricing them. You got to hedge the production as it closes, and then you got to figure out how to price them and get the investors to say yes. These deals will often have junior and senior tranches, so you got to easy sell with the senior guys, but the juniors are going to want more. That's uh, that's what you're hearing constantly throughout the market today. The whole market was put to sleep in a sense, in a risk sense, because of the Fed, and because we were always seeing rates go lower. Well, now we have volatile rates and we're not sure where rates are going. But my sense is the bias is still negative. I think that's a good place to uh, to stop the space. Richard, really, uh, I love listening to you. A lot of things that, that you said are really, um, I think, fascinating. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Chris Whalen here on Twitter. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Do appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions.
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.